Hello, and welcome to First Importance, the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer today is that you will be blessed and encouraged by the message to come. You know, there are passages in the Scripture that stand out more than others when it comes to our imaginations. There are accounts in the Scripture that seem to ignite our excitement more than other passages in the Bible. And the passage that we're going to study today in John chapter 6 is one of those passages. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. Maybe it's right. There are some that just stand out to me. I mean, you'll never see me imagining like how the book of Numbers really played out in life. Like one, two, three, next, four, five, you know. That would be extremely boring to me. But there are accounts well, like the creation of the universe. Wouldn't you like maybe when we get to heaven for God to just show us how it all happened? I mean, we have the words, but to just see it, to see the water as it covered the tops of the mountains and Noah's ark as it floated on top of that. Maybe to see Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and seeing how God placed an angel in there to keep the lion's mouth shut. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are a number of them. But the number one on my list that I would want to see is the miracle that we're going to read about today. It, to me, has everything that you need for uh, a good story. I mean, like when I've seen the few videos that have been released where they've tried to uh, dramatize this, it's either been, it's either seemed so fake with Jesus walking on water, or I've watched one literally the other day where Jesus was walking on water and he had his hands out like this. I'm like, who walks like that? No one walks like that. He would have walked really normal across the, the water. But this passage, it ignites my excitement and my imagination more than any other miracle. But when we come to these passages, so often we get, we get our minds so worked up in our imagination that sometimes we miss the points that are really being made and the awe that is really there. So it's my hope today, as we come to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, to be able to illustrate for you and to show you all of the beauty and the glory that is there in what our Jesus did. If you had your, have your Bibles, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it, was very, and it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea, had, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I do not have the ability in and of myself to show your people the glory of Jesus here. My words fall short, and the few words that I have from you are borrowed, and I mumble and fumble my way through them. So, Lord, please speak to your people the way that you see fit, and I won't try to take any glory from it, but will give all glory to you. 
save those who are lost and draw those who are saved closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The theme of this book, once again, is believe. Believe. I heard a few of you. Believe is our theme for the year. It is the purpose for which God penned this book through the Apostle John. Pen to paper as he wrote it down. The Holy Spirit carried him along in every single account in this book. Every sermon, every word serves as a, a sign that directs us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that if we believe in him, we will have life in his name. It's meant to cultivate that life. So for those of you who are here today who are believers who have Jesus in your heart, in your life, and you're serving him, and you're struggling in sin, the answer isn't really more in you, but it's really more in believing in Jesus. The heart of all of our sin is that we lack the faith, and we lack the belief in him, and this book is written to cultivate that, to cause us to be fruitful. And there are within this book uh, several signs. They will come to the fifth sign, that points us directly to the fact that Jesus was and is God. The first sign we found in John chapter 2. At a small little wed wedding out of Cana in Galilee. And there Jesus with no theatrics. He didn't wave his hand. He didn't yell abracadabra. All of the theatrics were gone. There Jesus, without even touching uh, the, the vases that were there, turned water into wine and restored joy to that wedding. As we continue throughout the book of John, we see in chapter 3 that Jesus cleanses the temple. And while this is not one of the official signs that John uh, speaks of, this is certainly a sign that he is who he says he is. After all, how could a weak carpenter man clear out the court of the Gentiles that had many, many police that were there guarding? How in the world could one man drive out all of the people, and yet Jesus does it with no repercussions. That's not one of the signs, but it certainly points to, points us in that direction. In chapter 5, we continue looking at the signs. Right before chapter 5, Jesus heals the official son from a long way off that a dad has, has traveled to come and tell Jesus that his son is near death, and there Jesus, from a long way off, not even with, within earshot, brings his son back to health and back to life. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus heals the man who is paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda. We saw all that took place there. And at the beginning of chapter 6, gives us our fourth sign that John mentioned specifically. The fourth sign was that Jesus took four tiny little barley loaves and two tiny little fish and fed a multitude that we call the 5,000, but that was just the men in all likelihood. It was more like between 15 and 25,000. Jesus displays his ability to provide. This is a signpost, John says, to point us to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And today we look at the fifth signpost, the fifth miracle that shows us that Jesus was not just an ordinary man. Because if he was just a good, ordinary man or just a good teacher, you would have no need to owe your life to him or to give him respect or reverence or worship. Because after all, every man, every human 
has faults and they're not worthy of our adoration and they're not worthy of our worship. But this will continue to point us to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Let's look at this story under three headings. If you're taking notes, there are three headings that we want to look at this story underneath. Number one, we want to look at the setting. And I don't want to lose you all, so we're going to go really broad at first. Something that you really need to know and understand as we look at this passage. And then we'll kind of narrow it down as we go. The, the broad view of this setting, it's very significant that it happens on the sea. A long and complicated history exists among the Hebrews and the sea or the ocean. Bodies of water really have a long, uh, complicated history with the Hebrew people. It's a place of chaos and unbridled evil. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation, we see this. And it's important for you to know because we're going to have a detail toward the middle of our message that, that makes this all the more important. That the water is thought of as a place that you can't control and that you could very easily lose what little control you have and die. In Genesis chapter 1, it's recorded after God has spoken everything into existence and as he prepares to have day one, day two, all the way through day seven, creating the details of the earth and of the universe. In Genesis chapter one, verse two, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here at the very beginning of time, before organization has been brought in by the master architect, we see that there is chaos as there is just the sea, as there is just the water covering everything. In Genesis chapter 7, it's the sea that covers the entire earth and under Noah's flood up to the tallest mountain, the sea, all the waters cover the entire earth. In the book of Exodus, it is a sea that seals off the escape of the Israelites from the Egyptians. And they're unable to pass if it weren't for a divine act of God splitting the sea in two and allowing them to walk across on dry land. It was the sea that was going to be the end of them. It was the sea that Jonah was thrown into when he refused to do what God had told him to do and go and preach to the people of Nineveh. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this. In Psalms, we, we read of the, the deep and the chaos of the deep. In the book of Job, we speak of the Leviathan and how the place of, of the ocean and the deep is, is a place of great mystery and of chaos. And even today, the ocean is part of the most unexplored part of our world. There's still areas that we have not seen and not mapped out and not known in, in its depths. Throughout the Hebrew history, the ocean, the sea, has been a place of unbridled evil and chaos all the way to Revelation chapter 21. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, when God creates a new heaven and earth, look what is absent, and the sea will be no more. The sea will be gone. Here is just this poetic view of the fact that the, the sea is a place of, of chaos and a place where they are unable to control it. At any moment, they can, regardless of their expertise, be plummeted down into its depths and lose their life. So it's incredibly significant 
that this happens on the sea. And I know you're saying, well, yes, of course, Jesus walking on the sea is important that it happened on the sea, but just hold with me here. The more recent setting is that Jesus and his disciples have been ministering. They've been ministering so hard. His disciples had been out doing the work uh, day and night. But Jesus decides to take his disciples to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to get a little bit of vacation. And wouldn't you know when they get on the other side to their vacation spot, a group of over 5,000 had gathered around Jesus to hear him. So instead of rest, they had work. And there Jesus provided for his disciples and provided for those 5,000 that fantastic banquet. And now as we, as we bring that miracle of feeding the 5,000 to a close, the people who had eaten, they wanted to take Jesus and to make him king. They wanted to take him and by force to have a, have a rebellion, an insurrection. They wanted to take life. But of course, Jesus did not come this time to take life but to give up his own life. He had not come to start up an insurrection, but to provide the resurrection. And so Jesus tells all of those 5,000 after they've eaten, go away, I'm not gonna be your king. He decides that he is gonna go up on a mountain to pray. And by the way, friends, here's one of these small little, little things that we often miss. But if it was important for Jesus the one and only Son of God, pure and holy, tempted just like we are yet without sin, if it was important for him to get alone and spend time with God, don't you think it's important for us to get alone and spend time with God? You better believe it because it's not even close. It's infinitely more important that we, that we get away from everyone and everything. I mean, it's not sufficient for you just to spend time in your car driving to work. And that's good. I hope that you do. But you need to get time away from everybody and everything and spend time with the Lord. And if it's a priority to you, you'll do it. Of course, if it's not a priority to you, then you'll make excuses about how all these other things must be done in your life and you don't have time for that. But if it's a priority, you'll do it. And let me encourage you. You ought to do it. Jesus goes up to the mountain and he prays and spends time with the Father and he sends his disciples away. He says, get in the boat and go over to the other side of the sea and we'll meet one another there. That's the setting. Now look at the miracle in verses 18 and 19. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They're about halfway through the Sea of Galilee, toiling, 12 men, they're already tired. They were tired before they fed the 5,000. And then it was just another long day as they saw this miracle, but still had to collect up all the bread and the fish and deal with all of that stuff. And here they are again, Jesus has sent them home and they're toiling again. The waves are rough. The wind is rough. They're making very little headway. They're rowing as fast as they can, as hard as they can. They're not making any progress. And that's when the miracle occurs. And let me suggest to you that this fifth sign actually has five miracles that occur with it. Five distinct miracles that all happen here in this one miracle we call Jesus walking on the water. Let me give you these five. First of all, Jesus saw his disciples. Remember, Jesus is on a mountain praying. 
He has sent his disciples out into the Sea of Galilee, which is the largest freshwater sea in Israel. It's 64 square miles, which means that it's about the size of Washington, D.C. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. It's dark. The wind is rough. The waves are rough. Jesus is on a mountain. His disciples are halfway across the sea, and Jesus sees them. Jesus sees them. Let me tell you what a miracle that is. Mark records that in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6 and verse 47. The Bible says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Can I encourage you with something right now? Jesus sees what you're going through. Come on, you better get a better amen than that. Jesus sees what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. And you may say, oh, he's never been through what I've been through. He can't possibly know the struggle that I have. Jesus sees and he knows. As a matter of fact, every little thing you've tried to hide from other people in your life, he sees and he knows. Here Jesus is on a mountain separated from his disciples by miles, by the dark, by the waves, by the wind and the storm. And yet Jesus sees them. Friends, whatever you're going through, Jesus sees it. Jesus knows it. The first miracle that occurs here is that in his omniscience, in his vast wisdom, Jesus sees his disciples. But the second miracle is the most obvious one. Jesus walks on water. Jesus walks on water. He walks on top of the water. Why, in the Red Sea, he parted it so the Israelites can pass. But here we see Jesus on top of this uncontrolled, unbridled sea. The wind is rough. The, the waves are rough. And yet here is Jesus walking on top of the water. Perhaps in our day and age, with all of the illusions and entertainment we have, our minds and our hearts may be numb to this reality, but Jesus is over the top of our chaos, and Jesus is above all of our evil. He is above those things. He is greater than those things. Jesus comes walking across the water toward his disciples. He didn't need a boat. He did not need... Some people have said that Jesus was actually walking along the side of the shore. And people have tried to discredit the accounts of the New Testament for many, many years, but some actually used the excuse that perhaps really Jesus was just walking along the beach. And so you're telling me that disciples who were professional fishermen don't know the difference between the beach and the sea? I don't think so. On top of that, they were very afraid. They were very concerned. Do you think that they'd been concerned just because there was a man walking miles away from them on a beach? I don't think so. Here Jesus is walking across the water, walking above the chaos. It's his ease versus their effort. For two to three miles, they've been rowing as hard as they could. And here comes Jesus with all the ease in the world, walking on top of the water. Third miracle, Jesus caused Peter to walk on the water. Matthew, Mark, and John record this miracle. Luke does not record this miracle. And as we read all of them together, we get more details about all that happened. Matthew tells us about the apostle Peter. 
As the wind is rough and the wind and the waves are banging against their ship, Peter looks out, he sees Jesus, and all the disciples are afraid. They say it's a ghost. But when Jesus identifies himself, Peter has the audacity to say, Lord, if it is you, let me come out and walk on the water with you. And so Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water toward Jesus until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and puts it on the wind and on the storm around him and on the waves, and he begins to sink. So Jesus is doing much more than we just originally thought of in this account. He has seen them from a far distance off and located them and knew where they were. He walked on water, displaying his power over creation. That water standing to attention as he walks by, allowing its creator to not sink to its depths. And at his command, Peter also walks on the water to him. But we also learn in Mark chapter 6 and verse 51 that he causes the wind to stop. Because the geography surrounding the Sea of Galilee is the way that it is, it's surrounded by mountains, the Sea of Galilee is prone to very quick and violent storms. It can happen all of the sudden. I went, this, I went online this week to look at videos of storms on the Sea of Galilee and watched in amazement as I watched these waves just seem to be out of control because the wind has come down through the mountains and hit that low uh, sea at the low sea level and has, has stirred it up so quickly. And yet the Bible says in Mark chapter 6 and verse 51 that when Jesus gets into the boat, the wind ceases. It stops. It freezes at the command of Jesus or really at the very intuition of Jesus. When he gets into that boat, the wind stops. And look at this final miracle. In John chapter 6 and verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately. They were in the middle of the sea, rowing as hard as they could, giving all the effort they had with all the worry that they had, trying to get to the place that they wanted to go. And here's Jesus. He is walking across with ease. He steps into the boat. The wind stops. And immediately, they're at their destination. Jesus brings them right to where they are going. Fifth miracle. The miracle is profound. It illustrates God's omnipotence. That if, if Jesus can do these things as recorded in the New Testament, if all of creation submits itself to his authority, then he indeed is the son of God and deserves our submission and respect and reverence. He is the omnipotent one. But finally, let's look at their response. We've seen this setting the miracle, now finally the response. Hold on, we won't be very much longer. And they were frightened, verse 19, toward the end, and they were frightened. At the very sight of Jesus displaying his power, his disciples, those who were closest to him, recognized their own weaknesses and how 
compared to him, they were absolutely nothing, and they were greatly frightened. They were dismayed. Their hearts were heavy within them. That was their response to Jesus in his power. It's like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when brought before the holy God, he falls at his feet and he says, Woe is me, I am undone. Isaiah says, literally, I don't know how one singular molecule in me is holding on to the other in your presence. In Luke chapter 5, when Peter sees a miracle that Jesus performs in filling his nets with fish, Peter's response to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's John's view of the glorified Jesus in Revelation the disciple who leaned his head back on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper now sees him in his glory. What's his response? I fell at his feet as though dead. The view of God in his power renders us useless. Like with legs made of jelly, unable to stand up underneath the pressure. For those who would say that when I stand before the Lord and I'm told whether or not I can go into heaven or not, and I will say this, that, and the other, or I did this good, or I did that good, there is no talking back to him. When you come into his power and into his presence, it's only his grace and his mercy and his love that sustains you. Here, the disciples are crippled with fear until Jesus says, it is me, it is I, do not be afraid. The Greek words here actually are ego ami. Oh, you don't get, that doesn't have any significance to you. I probably ought to probably tell you what that means. The Greek words ego ami are the same words that say, I am. When Moses was at the burning bush, and he asked the burning bush, or asked God through the burning bush, who should I say, what is the name of the one who sends me? And the Lord says, I am that I am. Not I was, not I will be, the eternal I am. And when Jesus calls out to them, ego, I me, he is identifying himself as the one who is above all things, who has always been, who will always be. Jesus is, uh, is making a statement uh, that is in, deser in deserving of their worship and their awe. And their response afterwards, after he says that it is him, the Bible says in verse 21, and they were glad to take him into the boat. And they were glad to take him into the boat. That's really an understatement, isn't it? Can I ask you a question? Is Jesus in your boat? Does he direct your household, your family, your relationship with your co-workers? Is Jesus in your boat? In these times of difficulty as we are plagued with anxiety and worry all around us, is Jesus in your boat? Is he directing your life? And if he is, you can be like the disciples to stop giving in to worry and to fear because when Jesus is in your boat, nothing else matters. He is the great I am. He is the one who walks above our chaos and our evil. He's the one who stands on top of the waters. He's the one who brings us to our destination safely. We can be glad when he is in our boat. Is Jesus in your heart?
Perhaps you're here today. Oh, and you've been to church or you've been a good person. And you would say, I'm not in need of anyone or anything for my own salvation or for heaven. Friends, I want you to know Jesus is the only way to heaven. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m., as well as streaming live on Sunday mornings at 10.45. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.